Okay. Let me ask the question again. What holiday did we just have? New Year's, right? And then what's one before that? Christmas. What takes place at Christmas? Lots of food. <laughs> what else takes place? There's family. There's giving of gifts, right? There's even this mythical being called Santa Claus, Father Christmas, whatever you want to name him. And sometimes we, you'll hear this expression. They view somebody as Father Christmas or Santa Claus. What do we mean by expression like that? Just gives things, right. It makes you feel good, things like that, right? Okay, with that thought in mind, let's look at Mark chapter 6. Fifty-three to fifty-six. And when they had passed over, they came into the land of Gennesaret and drew to the shore. And when they were come out of the ship straightway, they knew him, and ran through that whole region round about, and began to carry about in beds those that were sick, where they heard he was. And whithersoever he entered, into the villages or cities or country, they laid the sick in the streets and besought him that they might touch, if it were but the border of his garment. And as many as touched him were made whole. I wonder, how do people view the Lord Jesus Christ? How do Christians view the Lord Jesus Christ? Sometimes I think we may tend to tend to look at him like a Santa Claus, where he just gives us good things. Sometimes we may miss the point. As we think about this passage, I notice it says in verse 53, they came into the land of what? Gennesaret. What is that? Where is that? Well, it's in the land of Palestine, right? It's on the shores of uh, the Sea of Galilee. Fact is, sometimes you'll hear the Lake of Gennesaret. You know what the Lake of Gennesaret is? The Sea of Galilee. Why would they land, name, give it two different names? Well, Gennesaret was a very famous valley. Fact is, the rabbis called it the Garden of God or Paradise. Josephus, who was a historian from the first century, uh, uh, just after the fall of Jerusalem, wrote, he described it along this line, that it was a very fertile soil uh, which could produce and grow so many kinds of plants and trees. Its climate was excellent. You could grow walnuts. That's a cold climate tree. You, palm trees, which is a tropical tree. Figs and olives thrived. Grapes grew well. He said they produced fruit all year round. So it's a very fertile place. It's a valley. So, but there is something fascinating. Go back to verse 45 of chapter 6. 
And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship to go to the other side before unto what? Bethsaida. While he sent the people away. That's after the feeding of the 5,000. Well, they get in the boat and there's a windstorm. They don't land at Bethsaida, which is north of Capernaum. There's a couple places, probably northeast. They don't land there. Where do they land? Gennesaret, which is south of Capernaum. They don't get blown north. They get blown south. So you could say they landed at Gennesaret was an unplanned visit. Have you ever dropped in somebody unaware, unplanned? Some, or had it happened to you? Some people love it. Others say endure it. Depending or depending on the time. Well, here are some people that get an unplanned visit. How do they react? What are they going to do? Well, as he draws near to shore, he gets out of the ship. What do they do? They what? It's Jesus. They recognized who he was. Okay. And I commend them on that. Jesus' visit is unplanned. It's unexpected. But they don't mind one single bit. They recognize who Jesus is. I wonder. Had some of them seen Jesus do things? I would say if some probably had. Others would have heard about it. And what have they heard that Jesus did? That he could heal. You didn't have to pay any doctor's fees. And it always worked. I mean, didn't that sound great? And if somebody had poor eyesight and can't see, can't see, they get their eyes fixed and don't have to pay the bill for new glasses, whatever, you get the picture. And, uh, but what were other people saying about the Lord Jesus? What was going around? Back up in chapter 6, verse 2, the Lord goes to his own town where he grew up. Now they knew him as a kid. As they knew him as a four-year-old, five-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 15. They knew him as a carpenter. And when he comes into, uh, verse 2, when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, from whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Let me just state it in Wivelese. Where did he get this skill to heal people? He's just a carpenter. Where did he get this? And then in verse 6, he, that is the Lord, marveled because of their unbelief. They recognized he could do things. But they didn't believe him. Okay? There's another one. Uh, it even made it into the halls of government. Uh, verse 14. Herod, the ruler of the area, he liked to call himself a king. He wasn't, but he liked to call himself a king. And King Herod heard of him, and his, for his name was spread abroad. And he said, that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. Therefore, mighty works do show forth themselves in him. He beheaded John the Baptist. 
But you know what? It bothered him. And he heard about, there's this man going around healing people. Hey, and it really works. People are thronging to hear him. To hear him. He'll even speak to thousands. Who is he? Where did he get this ability? It's got to be John the Baptist come back. A bit of superstition coming through. Okay. But others, what did others say? Well, see. Others said, verse 15, that it was Elias. That's Elijah. Why would they pick the name Elijah? God had prophesied that, like in Malachi, that before the Messiah come, Elijah would come and turn hearts people to him. He said, yeah, this has got to be him. It was John the Baptist, but they didn't recognize, recognize John the Baptist. No, it's Elijah. Another said, well, he's a prophet. You know, like the old prophets, like Elijah could heal, he's a prophet. Or he's one of the prophets that has come back from the dead. They're coming up with all sorts of ideas. Who is he? Okay. Herod, he says, now, nah, he's got to be John the Baptist. Even the scribes and Pharisees had their solution. Back in, they heard, yeah, he can heal. They went and checked it out, and they saw he could heal. They couldn't deny it. That really happened. But if they said he got this ability from God, that meant they had to hear what he said, and they didn't like where that went. So they had to come up with a solution. Verse 22 of chapter 3 says, they said, uh, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of devils casteth he out devils. Now this black magic from the devil. That's how he does it. People are coming with all sorts of solutions. Who is this one going around? Well, this one lands at Gennesaret. And people recognize who he is. And what's the thing that comes to mind that they first think about? Was it the message or was it what he did? They looked at what he did. And, uh, you know, as I think about that, <clears throat> I commend them on this. As we look at these verses, one, they recognized Christ. That's important. They recognized who he was. I don't know if they had it sorted out who they were. The disciples did. They knew he was the Messiah. They were still learning more and more what that meant. Like when Andrew, he went and uh, told his brother, Simon Peter, he says, we have found the Messiah. Peter later on is going to say, thou art the Christ. You are the Messiah. Okay. They recognized, but there's something else they did. They recognized their need. Now, when you're sick in bed, do you know that you're sick? The last that I had that event, yes. I very well knew, and everybody else did too. They knew they were sick, and they heard that Jesus was there. Well, what did they do? Well, Gennesaret is actually a valley, a very fertile valley. I think something, if I remember the reading, something about three kilometers, something like that, in width. So they're hearing, he's over here, he's over there. So what did they do? They began to look out, they began to run where he went. He's down by the shore, so you see people streaming down there. No, he's already gone, he's over at this place. So your people are heading there. 
And where did they lay the sick? It says here in the streets. It'd be like this. If a celebrity was coming to Burke Street Mall, you wouldn't go to Burke Street in Mount Evelyn, would you? They're, they're the same name, right? But they're two different places. Well, they go where they're going to expect the Lord to be. And they're lining the streets. And uh, I can imagine the pandemonium. Look what it says here, what they did. And whithersoever he went into the villages, they laid the sick in the streets, and besought him that they might touch, if it were, but the border of his garment. And as many as touched him were made whole. Can you imagine what it's like as the Lord walked in? The pandemonium, as people would have been crying out? They wouldn't have just been whispering, would they? And those who, it was, as he went, you'd see people thronging. So, number one, they recognized who Jesus was. Number two, they recognized they had a need, but there's something else they recognized. Jesus could meet that need. And so they, which brings me to my fourth point, they could, they made every effort to make use of the opportunity. This was unplanned. Boy, they were making use of the opportunity right now before it went away. They wanted to get healed. You know, as so a look at this, they recognized who Jesus was. They recognized they had a need. And they really believed that Jesus could meet that need. And they made use of the opportunity. As I think about this, before I'm going to pick up on that, what did Jesus focus on when he was on earth? Did he focus on healing? He focused on what? The message. Very frequently you're going to find, especially when he was among the Jewish people, when he would heal somebody, he would say, don't go into the town. Don't tell anybody. Go straight home. And when they didn't do it, people would throng to get healed. And it, the Lord withdrew to the desert, to the, a no-people place, because he wanted people, yes, to be healed, but most of all, he had a message. What was his message? Well, back in Mark chapter 3, verse 31, There came then his brethren, and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, my, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? He looked around about on them that sat about him, and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. What's the Lord saying here? Is he denying his relationship with his family? He's not doing that. He's saying there's something far more important in life. There's something that must be most important of all. Because he gave honor to his, to his family. When he died on the cross, he saw to it that his mother was taken care of. 
John, the disciple, took care of his mother. So he had a love and a care, but he said, what is most important in life is doing God's will. The end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. You can just listen if you have trouble finding the book. After Solomon had gone through the Ecclesiastes and saying he, as a rich man, he had tried everything in life. And the end he said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's pointless, it is useless, it's empty. And then he said in chapter 12, let us hear the conclusion of the, verse 13, the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. You can do all the things in life, but the Lord's message was there is something far more important, doing the will of God. And his message we read back in chapter 1 was to repent and believe the gospel. What is repentance? Well, there's an excellent illustration, and I'll just refer to it in Exodus 13. The Lord says that he is not going to lead Israel the shortest way to the land of Canaan. He took the long way. And why did he take the long way to go from Egypt to Canaan? He said, they're not ready for war yet. They're going to go real quickly and see war. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to repent. Which means what? They'll say, forget it. This is too hard. I'm out of here. I'm going back. It was bad in Egypt, but this is worse yet. Repentance is what? You change your thinking. or when We change our thinking. We change our attitude to something. And we make an appropriate action in our life. That's repentance. Now, this is just something secular, but when the Lord says repent and believe the gospel, what's he talking about? He's talking about something called sin. Well, what is sin? Some people will think sin is just kind of a fiction, a fantasy like science fiction. Others will laugh at it. You know, like a little, uh, picture this situation. There's a little child, just loves Bickies. Mom's just made a fresh batch. And she puts them in the Bicky tin. Bicky jar, whatever, where they're kept. And the little kid wants to take them. Mom says, no, not now. No, I said no. Later on, when mom is busy somewhere else, what does the kid do? Grabs it and takes off. And what do people do? They'll, the tendency is to laugh. That's cute. No, what has the kid just done? He's shown that he or she is a sinner, has disobeyed. Uh, sin is a reality. Comedians. How many times, I don't really like personally to listen to a lot of comedians because they will play on sin and make it laughable like it's something insignificant. Something is just a part of ordinary life. You don't have to worry about it. But sinners, is, being a sinner, is an important reality. We are sinners not only in thought, but in deed. Um, what is sin? How would you define sin? 
What is God's character? It's holy, isn't it? Sin is anything that is not in accord with God's character. And there's something is how do we know what is right and wrong? God has given us a rule book, which is the Word of God, the Bible. So anything that is not in accord with the character of God or God's will, as revealed in the Bible, is what? It is sin. Now, when we think of that, Romans 3, the end of verse 22 says, There is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How many have sinned? Everybody. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, all have sinned. Now, let me give an illustration of something here. Somebody's just painted a hallway, and there's wet paint. Now, when there's wet paint, if you touch wet paint, what happens? You get wet paint, right, on you. Now, suppose some little kid is just really feeling ornery and decides to just roll along the... Uh, the wall. Now, how much paint is the kid going to get on him? A lot. Suppose somebody else wants, I wonder if it's really wet. How many of us wondered? Now, you've got just a little finger, just a little dab of paint on your finger. Who has paint on them? Both. For how many have sinned? All have sinned. It doesn't matter how much. Though James says, if we offend at one point, we're guilty of all. It's not a matter of degree. It's a matter of yes and no. When the Lord said, repent and believe the gospel, he's talking about that. Um, and the Lord recognized that it came from within, from the heart is where sin originates. As man thinketh in his heart, so is he. We read in the book of Proverbs. In chapter 5, which has been preached here, the Lord points out, hatred is as bad as murder. And we can go on with that. Uh, but what does sin do with us? Well, we read over in Psalm 66, verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart. Well, let's look at it. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord, what? Will not hear me. What does sin do? It breaks fellowship between God and us. There, with sin, there is broken fellowship. Adam and Eve, the ancestor of every one of us, when they disobeyed God's one command, which is eating of the tree, when they heard the voice of God, in the cool of the day in the garden, what did they do? They hid because the fellowship had been broken. We, their descendants, are in the same boat. We are sinners and we prefer to run from the light. It does something else. Look at John chapter 3, verse 36.
He that believeth on the Son. What? See, I hear pages. I'll wait give you a moment to get there. 3 verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Sin not only breaks fellowship with God, we're under God's wrath. We are guilty and facing his wrath and his punishment. So would you say as sinners, we've got a problem? We've got a big problem. We're facing God's wrath. It's like those people in the, uh, the Valley of Gennesaret. They recognized, yeah, who Jesus is. They recognized they had a problem. Theirs was sickness. That's what they focused on. What do we need to do? We need to realize with God, we've got a problem. They recognized something else. Jesus Christ could heal their physical disease. Be it paralyzed, the fever, you can go through any of the diseases. Jesus could heal that. And he did heal them. We've got a problem, and can Jesus Christ take care of our problem? Well, we read, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, we commemorated the Lord's table. What is this saying? It's saying we have a problem, but we recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ, in his one death, took care of the problem between God and us. The sin problem, which breaks fellowship, which leaves us under God's wrath. And as they were determined to make use of the opportunity, what should we do? Make use of the opportunity to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, like we read in Acts 16.31. Now, that is primarily unsaved, yes. But even as believers, sin does break fellowship. 1 John 1 9 was not written primarily with unsaved in mind, it was written with believers. In fact, let's look at 1 John chapter 1. The Lord led John to write this letter to some people, and we don't know where, but they were having problems. People were coming in. They were saying Christ wasn't really human flesh. They were saying they had the answer to do with God, this secret knowledge. Uh, they were deceiving and even giving them wrong ideas about sin. In this he says in verse 8, if we say... We have no sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But verse 4, 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we deny sin, that we've done it. Verse 10, If we say that we have not sinned, but make him a liar, his word is not in us. If we deny one, our sinful actions and our sinful state before God, we make God a liar. But there is a solution, which is what? Confess 
our sin. As Christians, keep short accounts. And if we don't know Christ, like the people in Gennesaret, they recognized who Jesus was. They recognized their problem. They believed there was a solution, and they made use of the opportunity. We need to be right with God. Let's keep short accounts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for your love, for your grace, for the death of Christ, that we who are sinners, it's an important issue because we're separated by sin from you, but by the blood of Christ we have forgiveness and we can now say, Abba, Father. We have a relationship, we have eternal life with you. And Lord, we thank you. And we pray for everyone here, for believers, that every one of us will keep short accounts with you this week as we live for you. And if anybody does not know you, that they would place right this day their faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen.